0: Welcome to Playing With Fire, the podcast for people who are ready to custom build their love.
1: We're talking about non-monogamy, however you design it, as an individuation opportunity.
0: Want to leave the default and make your life spectacularly you? You're in the right place. Hey there. Hey. So we're recording an episode today that we've been wanting to release for a while, but it had to wait. I had to wait because the person that I talked to is in high demand. This interview was done with Jessica Fern, who wrote PolySecure.
1: So that's exciting.
0: It is. So it's exciting for me for a few reasons. One, I mean, Jessica is an amazing human being. She's a lovely person. Also, she's written a book that's had a really big impact on the non-monogamy world. So yay, I love that. And because attachment theory, while it is not the only theory that I work from, it is, I mean, it it comes out of the psychodynamic world, right? So it fits in to all of the theories that I like to apply in my own life and in my clients' um, experiences. It fits right in. And I'm excited and I can't wait to play the interview. So we're not going to talk about this too long. But... I did want to preface just a little bit and say, this isn't a, like, this isn't an interview about a, what's, Jessica, what's attachment theory? That's not where I started. Because, well, she's written a lot about that. She's talked a lot about that. Go get the book if you haven't read the Go book. Get
1: the book. This is an interview.
0: And also because attachment theory, I think... More and more of us, we understand the basics of it. Like you can learn the basics of it from reading a few charts and getting some some Instagram information. <laughs> so I know that most of you have probably already categorized yourself to some degree uh, along the the, the quadrants. Um, are you more anxious? Are you more avoidant? Um, are you? Do you have secure attachment, or do you have earned secure attachment? There are all these things that we can talk about. Now, you have identified yourself as being primarily avoidant. Yeah, and if you were to talk about how your avoidance shows up in non-monogamy, what would you say is one of the things that it like one of the ways it disrupts your experience? Well, it just
1: of, um, by by encouraging me not to connect to. Partners or people who might be partners like to to isolate myself essentially by avoiding.
0: Right. So sometimes people talk about um, attachment styles and non monogamy and they only focus on how it interferes with the coupling, like how like you and I might struggle in our coupled non monogamy. Right. Like sure. Like here we are a couple and then there's other people. Could... But let's just get like break all that down because, yeah. I mean, we're people. We're non monogamous people and. What I hear you saying, and this is, I, I mean, it's what I imagined you'd say. Your avoidant tendencies have actually been part of what, I mean, if people have been listening along, your hesitancy to put yourself out there. They
1: interfere with my ability, not my, my, um, my tendency your capacity to, to pursue maybe? relationships. I don't think it's capacity because my mm. capacity is beyond my attachment style. Uh, But my tendency to... Your comfort zone? Definitely. Definitely outside my comfort zone, yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. And so I have tended Mm -hmm. towards an anxious style, but really disorganized. I mean, just uh, the amount of trauma history I have, it makes sense. I actually kind of flip back and forth between avoidant and anxious, and it's taken a long time. But in my relationship with you, even though it started off disastrously... Eventually, we got to a spot where I consistently um, feel and test as having earned secure attachment, which honestly blows my mind. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful reminder. I, I the first time I learned about attachment styles, nobody told me how mutable they were, how mm. how changeable, how workable. Your attach their tendencies, their preferences for ways that you move in the world and in relationships they're not set in stone and it's a theory it's not and it's not the only theory on how human relationships work so i like the way you just approach that like you're you're thinking about how your avoidant tendency and you you happen to to enact that in a way that moves you into isolation yep and my anxious history has moved me to over-care, over-function um, in my relationships, especially in my long-term. The longer term the relationship is, the more that's that tends to come forward. But at the end of the day, we have been able to patiently, <laughs> over the course of a long time, build, earn, secure attachment. And as, as we've done that, one of the core questions that I find myself asking when we do our relationship agreement process is, do we want to continue being each other's attachment figures? Right. Okay. And you can have multiple attachment figures and I have had others. Right now, you are my only attachment figure, currently.
1: But you're That's saying, just where
0: I am There in are my... other
1: kinds of relationships.
0: But there are other kinds of relationships and it would be okay if we mm-hmm. decided not to do that part. It would be, that would be a legitimate choice. So I think that there's a lot of emphasis placed on like, let's get to secure attachment. Let's make sure that everybody feels secure. It's, it is one option among many because the, the baseline for me and Jessica and I get into this more in depth is, am I secure in myself? Can, can I provide mm. my own safe haven? Am I actually, which isn't the same as I'm isolated. When you were eighteen, did you throw a lot of rocks into the river and th- and sing Simon and Garfunkel songs?
1: <laughs> river woods, yes. There was much rock throwing, right? Much solitary rock throwing
0: to the to the tune of "I am to a rock, the I am of, an island." Yeah, right. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, men of a certain age, right? So that that being your tendency, it's not the only strategy you have right. in relationships. Right. And my tendencies are not the only strategies I have what I like about the what Jessica lays out in PolySecure is it offers you a framework to think about relationships. And um, we also got into talking about her upcoming book. So she also released a workbook um, on PolySecure, but now there's another book coming out. It should come out in the fall. And that book, PolyWise, really takes things to another level and actually is very aligned with how I work with people because she's coming at it from an IFS, an internal family systems angle. So if you are interested in the dynamics of how um, your non-monogamy journey interacts with all of your parts, this is a great interview. Like Dive into this and prepare yourself because I think we're all going to be really excited when this book comes out. It adds to the conversation about how non-monogamy can be part of your psychological work over the course of your life. Whether you're really diving into your non-monogamy as an individuation journey or not, um, you're still here alive. So all of your relationships are part of how your, your psychology will unfold.
1: Fantastic. Let's get to it. I
0: don't think we have to go much further. Let me introduce Jessica Fern is a psychotherapist, a certified clinical trauma professional, and author of the book Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Non-Monogamy, and the Polysecure workbook. And um, in her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, people in multi-partner relationship configurations who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas. She helps them embody new possibilities in life, love, and all things. You can learn more about her at jessicafern.com. And with that, let's get to the interview. Hi, Jessica. It's so nice to have you here. Yes, thank you for having me. I was really excited to talk to you for a lot of reasons. One is anybody who can speak to polyamory at the depth that you do makes Mm -hmm. me really excited to talk Mm -hmm. to, Um, but also because I know that you've been deep in writing mode and I'm imagining that you have been turning over new stuff. You have these wonderful books, you have Polysecure and the Polysecure workbook, but you also have your own work. And I'm guessing that that goes deeper and deeper. So I'm hoping we'll have a conversation today that goes wherever it needs to go. Yes. Let's go beyond (laughs) PolySecure. Awesome. So just to start us off, I'm curious how you decided, like what got you into the, the attachment theory lens as such a strong theoretical position for your book? Like what inspired that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it felt like it came to me um, you know, in my graduate training, I was trained in grounded theory, mm-hmm. right? Which is all about really listening to the data and seeing the patterns that emerge instead of imposing theory onto the data, right? So as I listened to why people were struggling or how they described their polyamorous struggles, I was like, oh, they're describing attachment ruptures, <laughs> right? Like that's the, that's without them using the theoretical language, that was the experience experience they were describing. And then when I would bring some of that theory to those conversations, it just felt like it made so much sense to people. It felt like that was what was going on. Yeah. So it was sort of, you know, my attempt at making sense of how do I support these people? How do I make sense of what they're going through? And attachment is sort of what we came to. And it makes sense from this perspective, from the experience of especially if you're talking about people that have been monogamous and they're opening up, they've been in one primary attachment and now they are, they're looking to form multiple
0: attachments <laughs> with other people. Right. So it's like, Oh, of course. Right. Yeah. I, okay. So I think first off it makes perfect sense knowing now that you, that you trained in grounded theory. So my, yeah. my own research, I used um, interpretative phenomenological analysis, but mm-hmm. the other method I strongly looked at was grounded theory and I, it makes so much sense to, yeah. to study all of non-monogamy from a grounded perspective, because we don't know yet. We like the, the research is quickly growing, but it's nascent. So it makes yeah. sense to, to look at it from that perspective. You ask a question that I, my, I think my favorite perspective in the whole book, and this is saying a lot, cause I do really love the book. Um, <laughs> but you ask this question and you sort of iteratively unfold it for people. Do I want to be in an attachment relationship with this person? (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like not everybody really is fully ready to grapple with the fact that not all relationships have to be attachment relationships, but it's so important. It is important. Yeah, it is important. So tell me, what do you do when somebody is currently they're they're in a relationship and they read your book or they come into your practice and they're like you know what i'm not sure i'm not sure we were ever really securely attached i'm not yes. sure we we have that i'm not even sure maybe one of them isn't even sure that they want that totally cuz that feels like a different level of issue than hey how do we create a secure base like let's go through the steps and make sure our base is solid exactly Right. If both partners are all partners, if it's
2: multiple partners, want to have an attachment-based relationship, great. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's it makes it so much easier because it's like, okay, here's some steps, here's some things to try, right? And usually, when we have all parties willing and consenting to, a, you know, the depth of level that's required in more of an attachment-based relationship, things can shift. But when we have one or multiple people who don't want it and someone else does, there's a mismatch, right? Yeah. And it's okay that there's a mismatch. I think that's the beauty of non-monogamy is we don't all have to want the same thing, you know?
0: Yeah. Which do you is treat
2: that, explicit.
0: Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Thanks. Do you treat that a little bit like a, you might treat a desire mismatch then? Do you see that as an opportunity or do you see that as maybe a place where they're coming to, oh, maybe we aren't maybe we aren't fit to be partnered right now, or at least in this way. How do you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll explore, is it that you don't want to be attachment-based partners? Do you not want to be a partners at all? Cause sometimes there can still be a relationship and connection. It's just not as emotionally or logistically entwined. Right. Right. So really teasing apart, what level does each person want? And even there, you know, someone might say, well, I want, um, you know, a more, disconnected level and the other person has the right to say well that's just not going to be enough for me right right Right. and
0: then we're we're right back to some of the founding principles that agency and autonomy and getting to consciously design your relationship which is awesome but i've noticed that some people this it's like it shines a light in a particular a particularly tender area to say oh it's actually that we don't want the same kind of relationship where they might have thought the polyamory was the issue it might actually be the attachment level. It could be the attachment level. Exactly.
2: Or often I see just because two people or three people or four say they're non-monogamous does not mean they want the same kind of non-monogamy. And there's this, this non-monogamy style gap that I find, Oh, wow. Right. We really have someone over here who wants to be monogamish, doesn't really want to know much. And this other person is like kitchen table poly, and like, It's not working, you know, doesn't mean it can't, but like, right. Sometimes the styles are not as bridgeable as we would hope.
0: That's the right word. Bridgeable. I'm, I'm loving that. When I'm doing my work with, especially in that moment where people are like, what happens now? And one of the obvious options feels like ending. We end this relationship, but you mentioned something so important. Like we don't have to, what if we, what if we just completely redevelop it? And I'm curious, how, how does attachment theory work for you when one person is like anxiously or, or te- at least has tendencies toward that anxious attachment style? Yeah. And the other person <laughs> might be more uh, described as avoidant, but they just say, yeah, I'm not sure I want, I don't know that I want to have an attachment oriented relationship. Like, yeah. Because I feel like I I get that as a, as a bit of a, that can be a a game all in itself, where now the anxious partner is like trying to convince you to engage at the attachment level. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Mm. Don't try to convince anyone to be with you. (laughs)
0: We'll just, you know what, we'll just draw a box around (laughs) that. Don't try to convince anyone to be with you.
2: No, Don't like, if you're spending your time convincing someone how to show up, that they should show up, that they want to show up. It's just like, there's, there's other people out there who are going to want to be in a intimate attachment based relationship, if that's what you want, you know? Oh, yeah. And of course, the person that says they don't want it, I, of course, don't just stop. Okay, great. You know, it's like, yes, explore that deeper. Why don't you want it? And what maybe do you not want about it? And maybe you do and, you know, give that some time to unpack. But if someone's truly saying, this isn't the level of relationship I want, then really honor and respect that.
0: Right. So there I'm hearing like there's a there's a maybe a, a cooling off period where we yeah. learn about attachment theory and, and try to understand it. And we can we can start to cram people into boxes pretty hard. Right. Yeah. It, it, and at that point, I find sometimes people are just trying so hard to have that attachment-based relationship that they forget that they can reimagine. And maybe this isn't their attachment figure. In their adulthood, perhaps we go a whole other way with this. Maybe we enter into some other alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And sometimes, even with the same two people, it's really about timing. You know, like like you take a break or a pause, and a year later, like you're now more in a compatible place, you know? So it's,
0: yeah. Mm, That actually just really hit for me. Like, Mm. oh, yeah, revisiting that, revisiting. Which is all about ending well, which is one of the things that having a discussion like this can get you like the why behind choosing to end or take a pause or is so important. If you can establish the why, then it stops being a personal attack. And now there's more potential. Yeah. Okay. Okay, So I was talking with a group, um, in my groups, everybody loves your book. I I've never had anybody not say like, oh yeah, that was one of the top three books I had (laughs) to read. And, um, there was a question that surfaced that I thought was really, really interesting because I, I kind of, I think you might get pigeonholed a little bit too, which is into like Jessica Fern and attachment theory, right? Um, They were just curious what other theories you might hold alongside that. What else do you like to bring into your your own relationships or your own practice?
2: Totally great question. Well, and in the book, people might not be registering it, but I mean, I'm using a lot of narrative therapy and I do name narrative therapy, right? So that's one of my loves but really ifs internal family systems is an enormous love of mine and in my next book i sort of get into when some like troubleshooting when you have someone who is struggling with do they want to do non-monogamy or not and one of the whole things i go through is like which parts of you don't want to do non-monogamy to explore this at a parts level and it's incredible. I mean, sometimes it's five, six, eight parts that are protesting non-monogamy. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I've really seen, you know, like wow. And when people do more IFS-based work, they can then at least decide, okay, the self does not want to do non-monogamy, which is very different than my reactive wounded parts or protector parts, you know, protesting this. Yeah. Or they work through their parts and then they're like, oh, I am able to give this a try. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, now I understand why our alignment is so strong because so coming from a Jungian psychology background, yeah. IFS is really just like a modernized version of complex theory. Yeah. So it's, it's so similar. And I, I have to agree that with, when you start breaking into the parts and start helping people really reparent their parts and, and allow them to have a voice, I've noticed that some people, they have this dynamic in especially in group relationships where we have like it's complex already because there's three four parts going on and now you've got everybody's got their parts now we're talking about like campfire situation here <laughs> exactly. 20 different um it's 20 different entities have sort of entered the chat it's a it's a beautiful theoretical perspective from my position but I know sometimes people find it disorienting to be like what do you mean I have all like all of this going on in me? Why can't I just be one thing? Do you, do you balance that some with the, with the narrative therapy, like, and just allowing the narrative work to just ground them in what their story is now? Totally.
2: Yeah. And IFS really itself, you know, it's looking at like, there is the wholeness of self that has these multiple parts, right? Yeah. So it's sort of not either, or it's like embracing multiplicity and also embracing like the unification
0: of all of that and the unification of self. I'm super excited. I'm even more excited to see your new book come out now, because I I do, I feel like there's, it's, it's as though PolySecure brought us, brought us all to a place where we wanted to have this conversation. And now there's, there's more to be had because once you start creating that secure base, do you find that people struggle to maintain it over time? Cause I'm, I'm seeing some, it's like, like we're willing to put the work in up front. Like let's develop that secure base, but then, but then there's life.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not sure that's much different from monogamy or non-monogamy. I mean, that's sort of a main complaint, too, in long-term monogamous relationships is sort of like, oh, right, everyone put their best foot forward, (laughs) like when the hormones are strong, right? And now that we've sealed the deal with whatever form that is of structure, you know, um, we get complacent, we take each other for granted, we don't try in the same way, you know? But yes, then in non-monogamy, there's other layers of we're having new relationship energy with other people. And then our long-term partners can feel really left behind, you know, we have to remember like, oh, I have to be putting it like, and that's what I talk about too, is really gauging how available and how saturated are you? Because can you maintain the level of quality that each relationship requires? Right. That's (laughs) yeah
0: that's been such an important part for myself. I have seven children, so
2: oh, wow. obviously,
0: right? So <laughs> I'd, I'd be single, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, honestly, sometimes an anchor yeah. partner is a lot. right? If, <clears throat> when people ask me how I juggle it all, I'm like, well, one of the ways is by really monitoring my capacity. And a yeah. lot of the time I am only available for sort of lightweight dating. I'm, I'm available for that and I'm available for depth of friendship, but I have to be really, really careful and, and let people know what I'm available for because realistically I'm saturated right from the get go. Totally. And then negotiating with people who are in, I find people who are in different phases of their, if they're doing the parenting thing, Depending on what phase you're in, because my kids are now the the baby's about to get his license, so okay, yeah, your kids, the- but now they're grown. <laughs> yeah, right. It's totally different. When I was when I was first opening up, and my baby was still breastfeeding, it was it's just a whole different world. I yeah. and it, now I'm just noticing the alignment here. I was working so hard on their their attachment, on my children's attachment to me, and to showing up and att- attempting to be sure i was creating that secure base for them totally it was it was a challenge to yeah. be out there in the world offering that to other people it was an intense challenge absolutely i mean i
2: remember the first the hardest thing about dating was the first time i had a sleepover and it was the first night i wasn't there like in my son's life you know <laughs> like that was what was hard <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah yeah like yeah. oh my 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 nesting partner my, might be fine. They've got my, they've got my whole partner's
2: thing. fine, or they'll be fine, or we can process through it. But like, you know, is my three year old okay? like for me to go away for one night
0: <laughs> right, which which then, of course, yeah. brings up all the stuff, all the parental yeah. guilt issues and all of that. and i I for me i I also think that i and I noticed this with clients, people who processed through their parenting journey are actually pretty well situated. They're like, oh, this isn't that different. Yeah. And I think to your point, like, yeah, because there are more attachment relationships. Exactly. If we're, if that's what we're building yeah. and you practiced building that thoughtfully with children, well, more practice is more practice. That's just food for thought. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to percolate on that for yeah. longer. <laughs> yeah. So Jessica, my, my academic research is in jealousy. So like I specialize in jealousy. So I, I gotta ask you, yeah, I want to find out what's it like for you to be working through jealousy from that attachment perspective. Cause I, I have a slightly different background and perspective I add in attachment theory. Tell me how, how just the topic, I want to just like rip the the bandaid off. Let's talk about jealousy.
2: Let's talk about jealousy. That's great. Yes. Yeah. I love jealousy. <laughs> I think
0: it's... Right. Okay. You know what? That's it. That's all I needed to hear. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. So uh, when I tell people that I'm a jealousy enthusiast, yeah, oftentimes I get like full jaw jaw, even from my peers and professionals. They're like, really? But that's like the worst part. I know. But I was curious. I thought you might have a different take on it because jealousy is so informative.
2: It is. Yeah. It's so informative. And I think when we learn not to be afraid of it, Hmm. you know, not to exile our jealous parts, right? It's such a messenger and to really take it in as a messenger, right? right. And there's different levels that it's usually pointing to, right? So um, I've said this in other presentations, but looking at jealousy, it's the messenger at the level of like me, we or society, right? Just to rhyme, right? (laughs) And make it easy, you know? So the me is the individual level of like, oh, when I'm jealous, is this just in my own insecurity, right? I never got that degree and that partner you're dating got that degree or I don't have red hair and they have red hair, <laughs> you know, like, right? It, it has really nothing to do with the relationship. It's really more about my personal insecurity, whatever it is, right. you know? Right. And that's an opportunity though. Of, oh, there's, there's certain wounds here or narratives and stories about myself. Right. Um, or conditioning culturally and societally that I'm still struggling with, that now I have an opportunity to explore. Right.
0: Yeah. I. So when I'm when I'm sorting jealousy and envy for people, I'm always like, I, yeah. I, I'm always asking, like, yeah, if you're comparing yourself to a metamorph, yeah, exactly. I like I. I get it. Jealousy may absolutely be present. You might be feeling that threat, but if you're comparing yourself directly to a metamorph you got envy just mixed all in there. And now it's so hard to take them apart. Yeah. Even though envy has its own wisdom and its own way of instructing us yeah. like where the wound is or where we might just need to do some deep um, like reckoning with, do I even want that? Or have I been conditioned to want totally. it? Right. Yeah. But right. sorting them apart because I noticed so many people, like they just, they they turn their attention to their metamor instead of focusing on the relationship that yeah. they're in, especially if they have a parallel Polyam- yeah. polyamory situation going on that like it's just easy it's easier i think to imagine oh this is a terrible sentence i'm going to say it anyways it's easier to imagine my own unlovableness or unwantableness than to actually stay with my feelings of threat and having to negotiate that with you like if i'm used to discounting myself or thinking i'm less than it's sort of comforting in a way.
2: No, I think you're absolutely right. Like as strange as it sounds, sometimes it's easier for people to go the shame route and like the lack of self-worth route than to actually address or face or like go into the relational realm. Right.
0: right? Right. Yeah. We have this beautiful opportunity in that moment to, to both end the situation. Like exactly, <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's
2: one of the problems
0: you see is that
2: you know people go too quickly sometimes to just blaming. Actually, like, oh, you're jealous. It's your shit. Go deal with it alone. Yeah. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Jealousy is a social emotion, right? It's not an individual like experience, right? And so often it needs to be tended to and cared for relationally,
0: right? I'm seeing that in communities too. Like there's, there's this, some, some whole like local communities or even online communities that have bonded and they have a nice, there's a, like a firm structure holding them together. Yeah. Some of them have sort of outcast jealousy. Like we, yeah. we just, we're just going to, we're going to disown it, which we know what happens to those parts, right? we you disown know. them. And I always say, I'm like, it's like holding a beach ball underwater. It's going to yeah. pop back up. We just don't know where, but then there are others who really have moved toward, like incorporating talk about jealousy, I feel like yeah. that's where the the growing edge is. If we if we talk about jealousy as a as a social emotion, as a an opportunity to know each other better, yeah, exactly. It's not just the the any dyadic con- connection that can get better, but the whole community can become more supportive. Totally.
2: Yeah.
0: It's not simple though, because I and I I literally had somebody just yesterday say that they went to a metamorph they were having all kinds of feelings and they thought, okay, I'm just going to address this head on. They showed up and they said, so here's what I'm feeling. And the instant response was, that's, that's a you problem. I don't want to take care of you. Mm. And when, when they relayed this to me, I got the, I had a full body reaction of like, Oh, that's, that doesn't feel friendly to me. And this Mm. is where I like, I feel like we're, we've gotten so crisp on, let's set boundaries that
2: totally we, we then miss the relationship. Right. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) Which doesn't have to be that romantic connection. Like, right. We're in community. It's so exactly Mm right.
2: Yeah. Even just to say, thank you for sharing. What are you hoping that I will do in response? You know, like even that is a relational stance. So instead of, oop, that just sounds like your shit go away, basically. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. there. And when I was researching jealousy, one of the things that hid in the corner of almost every single interview I've done is there's like shame hiding behind all of the other emotions. There's lots of emotions that come with it. And then there's shame. And the more intensely involved in a non-monogamous community people were, the louder that shame was for many of them because they had they had like drawn a box around jealousy and said, I, I should get over this or it should reduce. I should not have to deal with it for f- at the same intensity. Yeah. exactly. Good. <laughs> Great. Exactly. big. Airport. Yeah, exactly. Right.
2: You know, that the idea that, um, you're good or bad at polyamory and, right. and that has to do with how much jealousy you do or don't have. And that's just a myth.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so then let's look at that from an attachment lens. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's there's something sort of convenient going on when we look at jealousy through the attachment lens, right? Because you have, on the one hand, we have people who are anxious, tendency, they know that and they're like, Yep, yeah, jealousy comes up for me. Mm-hmm. And then we have folks who are more avoidant and I have a large number of them who've passed through my doors mm-hmm. and they're certain they don't feel jealous they they never, they've never felt jealous but when we when we look at their attachment tendencies we see this like deep avoidance and disconnection yeah and i'm always suspicious there and uh, suspicious in a good way though it feels like this is their growing edge to me yeah
2: yeah exactly you- cuz their growing edge for someone that's in the avoidant dismissive style the growing edge is allowing your longing for the other mm. right you can't, you're right. You can't feel jealousy until you admit I have a longing for the other. right? And then, right. So it's almost like jealousy would come down the road of that allowance. Of, yeah. I want the other. I even need the other. Right. Right. Needing. Yeah, yeah. needing. It's huge, right. To allow oneself to be that vulnerable, to long. So that's what the avoidant dismissive style, that's their growth you know, and what I see is two things. Once they, you know, grow into that space, jealousy then shows up
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and it feels really healthy. It's like, oh, this is a good sign. You know, I also see like, just wait, (laughs) like anyone who has said that I've ever known, who said they've never been jealous or rarely do. It's like, just wait. And the right situation eventually comes along and there's some
0: jealousy, you know? Mm Right. I always say, well, you're not dead yet. So there's right, still time. Exactly. Don't worry, you'll get to it. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. Just like all other emotions. I mean, I'm on a bit of a mission with jealousy because I really think it has, it's been cast aside the same way anger was for a period of time. Like, let's just like, you know, no 1950s housewife was supposed to experience anger. Exactly. That didn't go well. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. and And how beautiful that this particular relationship style invites jealousy through the door. And just says, well, it's likely to come up, if not in you in your partners. And that's the other place that I see people struggle, that difference. I'm not experiencing it. What if somebody else is?
2: Totally. And I think maybe the important distinction for people to have is like, there's nothing wrong with your jealousy. And there's a difference between experiencing and feeling jealousy and acting out of jealousy. Right. And that is what we want to prevent. Right. Don't be acting out of your jealousy and reacting on to partners and metamors in harmful ways. Yeah. Right. I think that's what's hard. People have conflated those two. So just, you know, the reaction is bad. Therefore, the feeling must be bad, too.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. We imagine that the size of the reaction, even though in my research, like jealousy is it's spotted so early we can spot it at five, six months old. So, of course, the reaction is going to feel outsized. Yeah. But then now we're adults. We have the capacity to hold a big emotion. But something else that's interesting is it is rare for me to come across somebody who says that they were taught anything about dealing with jealousy at all. Yeah. In fact, it's only exactly. happened one time. <laughs> Thousands yeah. of conversations, one time somebody said, Oh, yeah, I remember like learning about how to deal with jealousy. I mean, I think it'll be different in the next generation of children, but. We're talking about emotions differently, which is awesome. But there's another aspect of jealousy that I'd like to touch on, and I'm curious what you think about it. There's there are these different ways that jealousy comes up for people who are practicing polyamory, and one of them I've heard called justice jealousy. Right, that's my term. That's yeah. your term, right? Yeah. Okay. So tell tell me more about how you yeah. spotted justice jealousy and. Cause yes. this isn't in my research at all. So I want to hear awesome. direct from the source. Yes. And so in my next book, I,
2: we go into this story of this, of when I discovered it. Cause the next book I co-write, I co-wrote with David Cooley, who we've been different iterations of different kinds of partnerships for 20 years and we were married and we were opening up and, you know, so justice jealousy is when you're in a partnership. And you come to accept, there's just certain things I'm not going to get from my partner. And you accept though, because it's just kind of not who they
0: are. <laughs> right? Sure. They don't talk just, that much or they, they don't
2: play right. dates or right? Or they just don't do those things. That's yeah. not who they are. And yet I love them and it's worth staying with them. And, you know, the acceptance, the reckoning of just like, yeah, there's certain things I'll never get. And then you open up. And they are suddenly doing all of those things for someone else.
0: Large yikes.
2: Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and you're like what?
0: <laughs> like,
2: what? You know, so I tell this story of just wanting Dave to initiate. And we tell the story together. So it's, you know, you fair game. It's, right. It's fair game. Of really wanting him to initiate more like date nights. And I'm just like, I don't even, you we don't even have to spend money. It can be a picnic on the beach. Like, you know, but just you plan an experience for me, like how meaningful that would be and how frequently I was in that role. And then just, you know, okay, that's not what Dave's good at. He's great at other things. I'm just not going to get that. And then we open up and he realizes like, oh, I'm not going to get any partners unless I initiate experiences. (laughs) Right and suddenly he has like this capacity and these this skill set that literally never existed before. And oh. so it's not that i didn't want him or that partner to have those experiences. I did. I genuinely had even compersion for that them. But personally it's like the injustice, right? Yeah. That like i've been wanting this for you from you for years and like and so then it's not really jealousy, it's more of this hurt right? Of like, oh, it's so hurtful. It's such a rejection. Yeah.
0: I, so I, I resonate so much with that. And interestingly from my first marriage, which was monogamous, Mm -hmm. but I saw this same capacity awaken in him. And it was, it was about initiation, initiation of experiences specifically. So for him, it was just, it was just friendships and it was actually his, like his guy friends. Right. But I was, it, we were a good 10, 12 years in when I realized he can do that and he just won't point it at me. And inside the container of our monogamy, there was like no way to complain about it. There was like I could, I could crab about it, I could like vent to friends about it. But everybody in my monogamous circles, it seemed like experienced the same thing. Yep. And then I became non-monogamous. And all of a sudden there was this way to see it as a highlight that then actually. There was a a reason to talk it through, a reason to process it through, because without that firm boundary of like, well, you're stuck with me. <laughs> without really? that, like it really changes it. So now when I notice it happen and when I see it happen for my clients, we're like, oh, it's oh, that's it's highlighting something that that you want. Cool. Have you actually expressed that you want it? Like recently, because right. sometimes we gave up so long ago. Right. And then our partner has changed and grown. Have we renegotiated for that? And I find that that's often a missing ingredient because there's this this like old anger around having asked for it years ago. Exactly, and like given up on it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I I Mm. appreciate
2: that. Of have you asked recently? Yeah. Yeah, and and sometimes it might be that like you you haven't been asking at all or recently, you know. And sometimes it just purely is wow, this has been relational neglect. Like right There's a neglect,
0: right. And so so, in that case, so I've noticed that there are people who really struggle to to recognize that, in particular, I see this with people who are um in a pretty uh, cishet het mononormative looking situation. and then mm. they open, and especially if they have children in a house and they have all the things, all the accoutrement that make them, look like they have one life they open up and they see this other side of their partner available the wound is deep but then the walking back into yeah. it is also really intense and one of the one of the resounding complaints has been from the partner who wasn't providing that stuff whatever it was let's say the initiation was that that wasn't that wasn't part of the deal like, yeah, we we had our arrangement. I don't want to change our arrangement, which of course now they've entered a, I mean, right. all relationships are negotiable, but there's also this, like, I don't, I'm sure you'll get it when I say this, if it was part, the partner who is complaining, who initiated opening up yeah, I find that the partner who's like been exposed for having these new qualities is often now like, well, you wanted to open up. Totally. You brought yes. this on yourself. So yeah, and it just feels like it's like, I, I just feel like it's layering on. It's like hurt, salt, lemon juice. Some blame
2: thrown in there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So I think of this hot potato we're tossing back and forth. Like, oh, it's, this is your fault. No, no, no. It's my fault. Like, and we're back and forth. Is there something that you recommend people do to like, to stop that, that intense trajectory when you see it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just initially calling
2: out like blame's not going to get us anywhere. I mean, it's just going to dig you further and further into a hole or further, further apart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so And really having to say, okay, we can argue about what the relationship was and what the agreements were of all these tiny years that you were together. Like, okay, here, what are you wanting now? You know? Yeah. And it's, and, and is it compatible now? You know, and this is what is hard about opening up is, is you start to have people who are willing to give you things you haven't gotten maybe ever, or in years,
0: and they can become a game changing situation. Right. And now we have to get real about the fact that it was an illusion. It was an illusion that we couldn't have this need met. We couldn't, it wasn't met. Right. In the scenario we had, but it was the illusion that, that the monogamy created that, oh, I can't get that, that need, want or desire met. But now I can. And now I find that I have to help people really remember that they've entered a full renegotiation. Like we we really have to give it space and time. Like I don't let people work with me for less than a year because I'm like, we need time to like air this out. And it's just such a, there will be all these layers. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so it
2: is, it's sort of having hard conversations of like, do you want to be with this person today? Who they are, who they are now. Who yeah. they are now and you know if your partner is saying to you that they need certain things from you like just like lowering the defenses yeah. is are those things you actually want to give are there things you're capable of giving
0: right I see certainly plenty of people were like oh I could I just don't want to because now I'm mad and now we're locked and and,
2: resentment now- and posturing yeah. right
0: yep exactly. and- and now we might as well head toward Gottman's route and be like, "Oh, now we've got contempt in the room. Now we've got, exactly. you know, we're in the same position. It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. which relationship structure we've aligned with. Yeah, the ending point could be that we we just won't unpack the resentment and the contempt and the discomfort of, hey, this is a change. Yeah. Oh.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you're you're making me reminding me like for some people. The stigma of opening up is still less than the stigma of divorce, right? I, I, know.
0: I see that, especially as more conservative yeah. um, circles are are opening up. I live in a, I live in a red dot in a blue state. Mm-hmm. More people who would typically be more conservative, more religious, and more yeah, they're like they would not. Divorce is not an option, right? Opening can be negotiated. I've actually worked with several people who are like, actually, if I look to my biblical text, I can find, like, this is fine. I can make space for opening. Oh, wow. But yeah. divorce feels very, yeah. like, they really don't want that. But it puts them in, in that same tough position of, yeah, but do I want to be married to someone who is st- locked in, like, we're locked horns in this b- battle of animosity? And no matter where else, I'm getting my needs met. Do I want that to be my day-to-day as well? Totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's It's it. a big question. Okay. Um, you have a great model. I, I love a good acronym. And you have the HEARTS acronym to talk about how, how people can identify those core skills of, of having an attachment relationship, or at least that's how I understand HEARTS. And the thing I love the most and what I wanted to ask you about is that when you make the shift you're introducing hearts in the book and I, I want everybody to go back and refresh, go, go mm-hmm. reread the hearts chapter. Cause it's always a good refresher. I just refreshed for myself. But when you then say, okay, yeah, we want to put these things in our relationship. And then you make this crucial shift and you say, yeah, and now you need to heart yourself now. Yeah. like, And that to me feels so in alignment with IFS techniques, with Jungian yeah. theory, like we've got to be able to, have access to that capital S self. in and, and in order to do that, we have to do, we have to make the same moves that we would of other intimacy. So I'm curious about one particular, there's one particular letter, it's T. Mm-hmm. You write turning toward after conflict. And I was thinking about what it's like to turn toward at myself after conflict, yeah. but also what it's like to turn toward myself when I'm, when I'm shaming myself, yeah. when I'm, like really like negative self-talk, I'm aggressive. What's your go-to move to like, to to get back from that? Yes, yeah. I mean, of course
2: I have another book that I will be writing on shame and the inner critic. And so often, um, and the ways we escape, I think I'll be calling it the shame triangle, like inspired by the drama triangle, but the internalized drama triangle, right? Um, and so, yeah, shame work is hard and, and we have to devote, I think, to it as work that we take on, you know, um, cause if we don't do it with care, it can create a lot of backfire. Right. And yet I, when I say that, I don't want people to be afraid of it either, you know, but we have to look at this as a multi-part inner system, like of the criticalness of the traumas that we've gone through through you know of the experiences that have brought on shame yeah Yeah. so I mean honestly shame work is usually trauma work right yeah call a spade
0: a spade it
2: it is it is right whether it was relational trauma societal cultural trauma you know right
0: and I even I mean my own take on it is I can create my own trauma
2: inside
0: like I I am we're kind of
2: capable of self-harm right
0: Right, I can absolutely be caught in my own web of this part of me is harming this other part, especially a young part that doesn't have doesn't have a good defense system and mm. that's that can become incredibly tangled like now, who, who's hurting me? It's so easy to project that out fact, onto a partner. yeah and at that point, I mean, it is it's really deep work obviously if if this is resonating, it's time it's time to look for your to look for your helpers. Yeah.
2: It's, it's yeah, and I feel like shame is shame work is some of the deepest. Like it's usually the bottom of a lot of the work. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The wounds that created the shame, the shame that has been a byproduct of certain experiences.
0: Yeah. And then the story we make around it to protect yeah, us.
2: And then the story
0: exactly. And my sort
2: of stance is that until we start that work it doesn't mean we never experience shame but until we start working with that part of ourselves we're not able to live authentically
0: yeah that's yeah, yeah. right absolutely i'm i'm thinking about how in the drama triangle when i <laughs> So I always talk about jealousy as a triangle too. I, triangles are just so dynamic. Triangle, like archetypally, right? <laughs> and archetypally, like triangles right. are the, the the it's the dynamic motion mm-hmm. of a shape, right? That's it. Um, but when I think about the drama triangle, I'm always so interested to see how we hop into it at one place. You know, we, we hop in yeah. at persecutor or we hop in at victim and shame absolutely feels that way. It has that energy where like, I can hop in at any point but boy, I can start. I can beat myself up from every angle, right?
2: And it's really sort of a deflated narcissism because when we're in shame, it's like, oh, everything out there is evidence that I'm not okay, not enough, not lovable, a piece of crap. And you know, like, yep. and you're like, whoa, the whole world isn't about you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: like, yeah. I yeah. had a I had a wonderful analyst who who said, um, yeah, I, like narcissism's fine, but don't like, don't don't like. It should be a healthy amount in both directions, yeah. in, both, in, right. in, in yeah. both directions. Do not turn that on yourself. It right. was, that was a groundbreaking moment for me. Cause I was, I was caught in my own shame story, having not come out well, having, and, yeah. and having met the world poorly that way. It's, it's fascinating to think about how these, how your work will now layer together. There's this, yeah. it's, it's interesting that you, so you started, you met the world with this security, like finding the safe haven and providing that, I think, for a lot of people. You provided okay. that by just giving them language and helping. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I, I had to read a lot of Freud and Jung and everybody else since, every every attachment theorist since. You do a great job of making attachment theory useful, like today, making it useful. Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic. I love it. But now I'm really intrigued to see how you're going to take this into the deeper layers. And I'm so... Yeah. So grateful. Yes. So grateful. Thank you so, so much. Jessica, would you just tell everybody, like, I mean, obviously everybody grab your copy of PolySecure and the PolySecure workbook. Yes. It, where can people find you? What would you like people to know next?
2: <clears throat> yeah, they can go to my website, JessicaFern.com. I'm not big on social media, but I'll send out newsletters if like events are coming up or things like that, or if I have different kind of offerings. Um, that I'm doing. So that's the best way to stay in touch. You know? awesome. um, yeah. And then hopefully by the fall, Polly Wise will be coming out. And that is sort of, you know, the next wave of, of what my offering for non-monogamy. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. I, well, I'm thrilled and thank you for sharing a little bit about where the work's headed. I think yeah. it's really exciting. And I think, I know my listeners, they're, they intentionally are using non-monogamy as part of their individuation path. Yeah. Right? Like and that's what-
2: A whole chapter we, on, on codependency and individuation in the next yeah, it's like,
0: <laughs> like that's what we want. So yeah. thank you for for moving the needle, for taking this conversation deep, right? I just appreciate it so much. And thank you for joining me today.
2: Yes, yeah, thank you. It's wonderful talking with you.
0: There's no one right way. To design your relationship and lots of people actually about 25% according to a recent national survey are interested in some type of open relationship but how do you know if you are ready to open up happily not everyone is and that's no problem I've got a 60 second quiz that will give you the answer and even better you'll walk away with your next step, whether you're good to go or not so much when it comes to opening up. And this is no BuzzFeed nonsense. I personally designed this quiz from my years of academic research. Go to JolieQuiz.com. That's J-O-L-I-Q-U-I-Z.com and find out if you're ready to open up happily and what to do if you are or if you're not.